Coming up on today's show, Roe v. Wade is no more. The U.S. Supreme Court has overturned the constitutional right to access abortion in the United States. Canada's inflation rate hit 7.7% in May, but what does that mean in dollars and cents? And we'll get an update on that weird balancing rock on Mars. It is the headline story of the day, an historic ruling out of the United States Supreme Court this morning. They have overturned the landmark Roe v. Wade ruling that happened back in 1973, which made right to access an abortion a constitutional right in the United States. That is no longer the case. Um, and it's uh, it, it's one of the most intensely debated topics. Um, we had some indication that this might be on the horizon back in May when a, a leaked document came out indicating that the votes were there to overturn this. And now, lo and behold, once it came to a vote, that's what happened. The decision happened today. They upheld a Mississippi law that would ban most abortions after the 15th week. And it abolishes the legal precedent established in 1973 and reaffirmed by the Supreme Court in 1992, um, but it is now being overturned. Basically, what the ruling says is um, the decision on whether or not um, abortions should be legal should fall to the states. Individual states will now be able to make their own rulings, and we already know there's about half the states are planning to put in uh, restrictions, if not outright bans on abortion. So uh, let's get some insight on where we are and where we might go from here. We're going to chat with Dr. Marinda Green-Bartid, who is an associate professor, cross-appointed in the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies Department and the English and Writing Studies Department at Western University, um, also originally from the United States. Um, Dr. Green-Bartid, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. Let's just start, first of all, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, um, you know, handing the decision-making back to the states. Just what does this mean for abortion in the United States? It's historic. Why? What does this mean? Uh, It means that, as you've just said, effectively probably 50%. I think the estimation is as many as 26 states are going to enact stronger restrictions, if not ban it outright. And we know that a number of these states have trigger laws in place. I think it was the governor of Mississippi or somebody, uh, mm-hmm. one of those states tweeting out this morning that those, no, it's Louisiana, that law is already in effect. Abortion no longer legal there. So, I mean... Um, I mean, in Texas as well. Texas as well. So what is that going to mean for women in the United States? It's going to be a patchwork system. And uh, I mean, we're, it's a major step back, right? Back to where we were in the 1960s and 50s. Well, uh, yeah, it's a major step back. I think that some states are already in the process of enacting laws to uh, codify it within the state, uh, New York state, for example. But in many of the states that are already, that will move to outlaw it, like Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, it's already virtually impossible to get an abortion. I believe in Mississippi there are a limited number, and this is just an example, a limited number of uh, abortion providers uh, so women who live in poverty, women who live in rural areas already have extremely limited access, and now they're going to have no access. And I would like to be really clear, this isn't going to prevent women from having abortions. Right. Women have had abortions, um, you know, forever. Uh, this is going to make it harder, and it means that women are going to die. And and not just women, but um, anyone who, like trans men also need access 
to uh, to abortion. It's health care. There are any number of reasons why someone might seek out an abortion. Doctor, where do we go from here? This has been a fight that's been going on for decades. It won't end with this decision, obviously. What comes next? I think that what comes next is that it has to be grassroots. It has to be... Um, it has to come from the local communities. It has to come from organizations like Planned Parenthood. But I also think that larger um, changes need to be made to the way that laws are enacted at the federal level in the United States. Uh, I, I was reading this morning, 71% of Americans support access oh, yeah. in some way, shape, or form to, to abortion. This is not the will of the people. Uh, this is the will of a minority, and there are individuals, particularly in the Senate, who are making this impossible to overturn. Now, here in Canada, well, last, la- yeah. when, when, when the leaked um, uh, document came out a few months ago, a, a number of Canadian politicians uh, reaffirmed their commitment to being pro-choice. Uh, just going to read a tweet here from our Prime Minister this morning, came out about an hour ago, saying, The news coming out of the United States is horrific. My heart goes out to the millions of American women who are now set to lose their legal right to an abortion. I can't imagine the fear and anger you're feeling right now. No government, politician, or man should tell a woman what she can and cannot do with her body. I want women in Canada to know that we will always stand up for your right to choose. Where are we in terms of um, Canada? I mean, this decision, we should point out, is, is an American decision, right? It is, but often policy in the United States affects Canada, and uh, abortion is not protected at the federal level in Canada either. Right, exactly. It's more of a, an ongoing discussion. But do we, uh, just the current state of where that movement is in this country, uh, I, I, I can't think of any politicians who are in a position to actually affect this kind of change, standing up and saying they want to, right? I don't know of any that would stand up and say that they want to, yeah. but I would be cautious to say that this couldn't happen in Canada. I think that... Um, that, that this kind of significant change in policy could embolden some people to start becoming more vocal. Where do we go from here in terms of um, the fight, do you think? And, the, and the, I mean, obviously, as we said, it's not going to be settled. And, and, and you know, we're seeing people in the streets already. And as you were saying, you think that's where it needs to happen. But in terms of politics overall, um, how does it change things in the United States? We've got midterms coming up. We've got another election a couple of years after that. I mean, this is really a seismic shock through the country. It's, it's one of the issues that um, really defines a uh, government and how people vote, right? It, it, I think for a lot of people it does. I think that we have to reframe the debate. It has to stop being... We have to stop referring to um, individuals who are anti-choice as pro-life because we need to look at their their other policies. And typically, um, politicians who define themselves as pro-choice are also anti-education um, and anti-other uh, supports for women and minorities. And um, they often don't support things like um, funding increases to, to daycare or to maternity leave. I mean, so we are going to, this. it's no longer federally protected to have an abortion in the United States, but is also one of the only countries in which you don't get maternity or family leave, right? I, um, 
gave birth to my first child in the United States, and I was entitled to six weeks of mm-hmm. maternity leave. So it, it's a part of a larger issue in which, or a larger set of issues in which people are looking uh, to disenfranchise women, uh, minorities. This law in particular, or the lack of Roe v. Wade, is going to significantly impact black women. It's going to result in more maternal deaths. Um, which uh, black women in the United States already have the highest rate of maternal death. Uh, it, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a big deal, yeah. and people need to think about how they're voting. Yeah, and doctor, you make a great point. I mean, and, and the U.S. president said this morning, "This now makes us an outlier among developed nations yes. for all of the Absolutely. reasons that you just cited." Yeah, uh, thank you Absolutely. so much for your time, doctor. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. That's Dr. Miranda Green-Bartit, who is an associate professor, cross-appointed in the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies Department in the English and Writing Studies Department at Western University. I read you the statement from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, uh, as I see U.S. President Joe Biden also speaking about the U.S. Supreme Court decision this morning. State laws banning abortion are automatically taking effect today, jeopardizing the health of millions of women, some without exceptions. So extreme that women could be punished for protecting their health. So extreme that women and girls were forced to bear their rapist child. With the child, a consequence. It just, it just stuns me. So extreme that doctors will be criminalized for fulfilling their duty to care. Imagine having a young woman have to carry the child of incest as a consequence of incest. No option. Too often the case, the poor women are going to be hit the hardest. It's cruel. In fact, the court laid out state laws criminalizing abortion that go back to the 1800s (laughs) as rationale. The court literally taking America back 150 years. This is a sad day for the country, in my view. But it doesn't mean the fight's over. U.S. President Joe Biden reacting to the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, As he said, uh, they did cite things going back to the 1800s. It was a position of the country since 1973. That's when it first became constitutional right to access an abortion in the United States. It went to the Supreme Court in 1992, and it was upheld at that time. Uh, And the latest case came from Mississippi, um, a law that would ban most abortions after the 15th week. The court upheld that law and in doing so abolished the legal precedent of Roe v. Wade established in 1973. Now we're going to get back into something we've talked about a lot recently, and we're going to continue to talk about, because it matters to every single one of us, the rate of inflation. And uh, it's 7.7% in May, which is the highest it's been since, I believe, 1983. Call it 40 years for the sake of round numbers in this country. And um, it's really, really starting to have a real impact on uh, the lives of all Canadians. So joining us to talk a bit about what's going on and dig into the numbers a little deeper, we have Trevor Toome joining us now, who's an associate professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary. Trevor, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So I, I've been following you on Twitter as you sort of dive into these numbers, and I'll go through a couple of the things that stood out. Inflation is soaring. We know it. 7.7% mm-hmm. on that big number, which is huge. But, you know, there's a couple of factors really that are tipping it into that absolutely extraordinary territory, right? Energy and housing are the two big ones. That's exactly right. And, and so we know, especially here in Alberta, that oil prices are up significantly. So that benefits the government through royalties. But we, in the short term, as consumers of gasoline, you know, pay a lot more at the pump than we did last year. So energy just alone is contributing nationwide two and a half percentage points of wow. that 7.7. So like one third of the overall inflation rate that we see is, is really due entirely just to energy. And then real estate prices, homeowner uh, costs are also rising significantly. And that alone adds another one and a half uh, percentage points. So a huge fraction of our unusually high rate of inflation is just due to those two things. Yeah, holy cow. Um, now, you've been getting pretty micro in some of your analysis, which is fascinating to me. I love it. Um, and you're talking about how this inflationary period and what we're seeing happen is regressive, uh, a concept that was new to me. But explain to you what you mean by how this inflationary cycle that we're in right now is regressive, what that means and what it does. Sure. So, so you and I, or everyone, we kind of face the same prices for goods and services at the at the store. But the hit that those price increases means for a family's overall situation really depends on what fraction of their income they are allocating to spending rather than saving. And so, higher income individuals uh, tend to save a lot more, a larger share of their income than lower income individuals do. And so, higher income uh, families do have a uh, much easier time coping with uh, price increases because they can adjust uh, through savings, whereas lower-income income individuals don't. And so roughly speaking nationwide, the inflation we're seeing now, it's equivalent to about a 10%, a nearly 10% reduction in the purchasing power of the disposable income of low-income individuals. So it's a particularly large hit uh, for those families. That is a big hit. And and tell us about the $400 a month. You're you're estimating that's roughly what we're paying more in in terms of a Canadian household right now? Yeah, so that's kind of translating, or it's my estimate to translate what 7.7% inflation means, which is kind of a little abstract. So we can put that in dollar terms. And What that effectively means is when you break it down product by product, it looks like about a $400 per month increased cost equivalent to families. That means they either have to save that much less or find savings elsewhere by shifting what they're purchasing or, um, unfortunately for many, taking on additional debt. You know, Trevor, we've had stories over the past couple of years where people have, you know, the surveys have been done where people are $200 a month away from not being able to pay their bills. So that illustrates just how big of a hit this is to a lot of Canadians. Yeah, indeed. I think so. This way of thinking about inflation in terms of of dollars is quite useful. Yeah, uh, because it's it's real. You can picture what it uh, means. You can get a sense of what the scale of uh, the challenges for government if it did want to try and offset uh, those pressures. And so, it, it, when you add up those costs across households nationally, it becomes. You know, quite significant, about $6 billion per month. 
how do you resolve, well, not resolve it, but make it better? Like you mentioned what governments are doing, you know, helping Albertans who are being hit hard. We've got windfall taxes in some jurisdictions. We've got gas tax suspension in our province. They're pushing that Mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. We've got energy rebates coming in Alberta. What's the best way, do you think, to sort of help Canadians get through this situation that we're in? Well, first, it's important to remember that there's not uh, easy... Uh, or cheap thing that governments can do to help, especially in Canada, where the the key drivers of inflation are really tied to global developments. There's not a lot we can do to affect the world price of oil here, and there's not a lot in the short term that governments can do about real estate and home ownership or even or even rental costs. And so what governments have done is at the margin provided income support, either in here in Alberta by lowering taxes or as we'll see in July, a $150 rebate on electricity. The different jurisdictions are, are providing limited targeted support in those ways. Um, and it's really not, I think, nationally, even fiscally possible for the government to contemplate fully insulating families from the effect of high prices. And if it did, that itself might be inflationary because uh, it would increase demand for certain products leading to even higher price increases. Uh, if you look into your crystal ball, Trevor, where, where do you see us going and what's on the near horizon and a little farther off? Well, because of the key drivers being energy and shelter, we really do need to think about those two markets. And, of course, predicting oil prices at the best of times is a, is a tall order, and these are not the best of times right now. So who knows where oil is going to go? If oil globally falls uh, through the balance of this year, then we're going to start to see that pressure ease. We are starting to see real estate prices come down uh, modestly in some markets. So whether that continues will be important to watch. So it's really tied just to those two things. Yeah, those are the two biggies. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So we'll watch them closely. Trevor, thanks so much for your insight. Always a pleasure. Space, the final frontier. Possibility of successfully navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,720 to one. Yeah, it's time for a little space talk. And this is going to be fun, I think. I just, if you're on Twitter, I just tweeted out the story that we're going to be talking about. If you're close to the internet, put in weird balancing rock on Mars has the internet crying aliens and go to the global news story on this so you can see the pictures that we'll be talking about and I am thrilled that uh, Dr. Mitch Schulte is with us he's the Mars 2020 Perseverance Program Scientist at NASA headquarters Mitch, thank you so much for joining us appreciate your time uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, okay, so as I said, and, and I'm sure you've seen these pictures and talked a lot about them. First first things first, let's just get out of the way, because we haven't talked about Perseverance for a while. It's, it was over a year now that it went up there, and it's been buzzing around, doing its thing, getting us pictures. Um, so far, it seems to be doing just an incredible job, right? Oh, yeah, it's been working really well. We're very pleased with how all of the scientific instruments have been working. The navigation system and the mobility system have been incredible. We've been making uh, a lot of uh, headway in terms of covering the ground, as it were. And uh, as you mentioned, the images we've been getting back are just stunning. Uh, lots of data coming back. It's just been working really well. Okay, so w- what is it doing? Like, Is it just pictures, or, or what's the mission that Perseverance is on right now? Uh, so we have several scientific objectives, one of which is to uh, you know just understand the geology. So we want to know the rocks that we're seeing 
how they got there, why they're there, all that kind of stuff, which is sort of job one. Uh, the second big job is to sort of look for evidence in the rock record. Now, remember that these are really old rocks on Mars. They're on the order of about three and a half billion years old. And what we're looking for is maybe some evidence in the rocks that life might have existed in this environment. So the, the area where Perseverance is exploring now is a, a, a river delta. So we know there was liquid water on the surface in the past. And that resulted uh, from a river flowing into a lake that was inside that crater uh, in this uh, delta-shaped fan uh, deposit that we see of sediments. And so we know there was liquid water there three and a half billion years ago. Was there life there? So Perseverance is looking in the rock record to see if there might be signs that life might have left behind, like we sort of sometimes see here on Earth in really old rocks. Uh, and then finally, we're actually collecting samples of the Martian surface that we're working on plans to bring to Earth so we can study those in the future uh, in laboratories here on Earth. Interesting. Okay, so there's a lot going on there. Now, of course, the pictures that everybody's talking about down here on Earth, as it always seems to be the case, uh, first one first, and I got to admit, you take a look at the picture, and it is pretty neat. Um, it's the balancing rock, I guess it's been called. It, it appears to be a round rock teetering on top of a much larger rock. Now, of course the immediate response from some people is, oh, the Martians put it there, but I'm sure there's an explanation. What, tell us about that picture, Mitch. Yeah, so we see, we see rocks like this on Earth all the time, right? And nobody ever complains that they think aliens <laughs> put them there. <laughs> um, but what, typically what happens is that rocks are composed of different kinds of uh, particle sizes of grains and so forth, uh, and different kinds of minerals, and especially sedimentary rocks where you get all of those different kinds of sizes and particles mixed up together and minerals mixed up together. Uh, and then once they get compressed into a rock, some parts of that rock erode more easily than other parts. And so that typically results in those sort of shapes that you see. And what happens where you see that the larger or the smaller rock on top of the larger rock that sort of balance there, probably what happened there is that that place where they contact each other, the, the rock was a little bit more, um, strongly cemented together at that particular spot. And so the rest of the area erodes, erodes away. Yeah. But, uh, but it, that, that cement there is strong enough to keep that rock on top. Right. And, and like you say, there are several examples of that uh, on Earth in many different locations. The other one that... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very, very common, very common occurrence in some of the sedimentary rocks, especially here in the uh, southwest part of the United States, for example. Yeah, exactly. And we have them in Alberta, too. Um one of the pictures that I saw that it looks really, really interesting to me, I, I think they're calling it like a dog door or a doorway that leads into a rock face. Um, tell us about that one. If you see the picture, it's, it, it, it really does kind of look like an entranceway carved into this face of a rock cliff. Yeah, so if you look at the, if you look at the rocks around that area, uh, you'll see that they're very strongly layered, right? And yes. so what happens is that the, those layers are really good. Um, they stand out because, again, some of the material erodes out from in between the layers. Some of the layers are stronger than others and, and stay, and some of the layers get sort of eroded out. Um, but all, what also happens is that along those layering um, structures, the, the rock can also fracture, quite a bit. And, and there is a very particular um, pattern that you see in some of these layered rocks where it will always essentially break along that plane on that layer. 
Uh, and so that's essentially what's happening here. Again, it's just an erosional feature where uh, there are fractures in the rock that have sort of created the shape. The last one that has people um, all at Twitter uh, is... It's a piece of tinfoil, is what it is, or at least that's what it looks like. This one also easily explained, right? Yeah, so actually what that is, <laughs> is a piece of the spacecraft that helped land the rover on Mars. Um, so as the process of landing on Mars continues, various pieces of the spacecraft have to leave, right? So there's the part that holds the parachute that helps us slow down. That's called the back shell. Uh, and so then that comes off and sort of lands somewhere else on Mars. Uh, and then as the rover is lowered to the surface on the sky crane, um, after the sky crane deposits the rover on the surface of Mars, it flies away and essentially crash lands somewhere else. So we've actually driven already by the um, the, the back shell with the parachute. Uh, and so we think that, th- that this piece that you're seeing on this rock is just another piece of sort of the wreckage of that process of the, uh, of the, the landing system. How long does this mission continue? I remember hearing about that when this all started, but what's the lifespan of the work being done by Perseverance? So the, so the hardware, we, we have two different ways of defining that. One is what we call the prime mission or what's been approved for the science team to and the, and the operators of the rover to do. Uh, that currently extends until um, early in 2023, so January, February of 2023. Uh, so that is equated to one Mars year. And okay. it takes about two years for two of our years for Mars to go around the sun once. Uh, and so we sort of define, you know, the mission as a Mars year. Uh, but we have also qualified the hardware, so we, meaning we've tested it, and so the warranty, essentially, if you want to look at it that way, from the hardware, meaning the rover and the instruments and all the systems and stuff, uh, to one and a half Mars years, which would be about three Earth years. So we're working on plans to sort of, uh, you know, think about extending the mission uh, beyond what we call the prime mission because everything is working really well. And, of course, we're trying to collect these samples that uh, we're going to leave on the surface of Mars for future missions to come get. Just amazing work. Um, Dr. Schulte, thanks so much for being with us this morning. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.